Well, let's pray. I want to ask God to meet us as we open up the scriptures today. So let's pray and bring that before him. Lord, I pray for the outpouring of wisdom upon me and us and revelation that our hearts would be deeply stirred with these amazing truths we're going to see today in Hebrews chapter 11. Father, I ask that you would have our hearts be good soil, that, that no uh, thorns would choke this word out of our hearts, that, that the word wouldn't just stay on the surface of our hearts, but would penetrate to the very depths of our hearts, that Satan couldn't come and take this word out of our hearts. But Lord, let us have good soil that the word would go deep and transform us. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Going through Hebrews, enjoying chapter 11. I'm having a great time in this chapter. And like we always say, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We will bring one to you. We want everyone to have a Bible that they can look at and study with. We are passionately committed to studying the Bible. This is the very words of God in this book here. This is a book like no other. We were talking about this at our membership class yesterday. This is God's words. Through the apostles he's raised up to write. And so the passage we're looking at today, Hebrews 11, 9 through 16, that's page 1008 in the Bibles we're passing out. And in this passage, the author raises a, a crucial question that we each need to really understand to be able to effectively follow Jesus Christ without discouragement, without falling into hopelessness. It's a crucial question. So here's, here's some background to the question. We all know that we're living here in this world, and we know that God is good. Okay, we're living here in this world, and we know that God is good. And so we can conclude that what that must mean is that God's all about giving us good things in this world. Right? God's good. We're living here in this world. That must mean he's committed to giving us all these good things in this, this world. So we can think that means like all of God's people should be expecting health. And all of God's people should be expecting perfect families. And all of God's people should be expecting financial comfort and, and prosperity. And so if we, if we think that's what all of God's people should be having, then that's what we would put our hope in. We put our hope in health. We put our hope in having perfect families. We put our hope in financial prosperity. But then what happens when you're diagnosed with cancer? What do you think? What happens if your baby is born with a severe disability? What do you think? Or when you lose your job? What do you think in those scenarios? And what can so easily happen is we can think, God doesn't love us. He's angry at me in some way. God's failed me. And we can become disillusioned. We can become bitter. We can become skeptical, cynical, angry at God. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you maybe are there right now. We need to hear what the author of Hebrews says in this passage. This is so important. So the question the author deals with in this passage is, what does God promise us? What does he promise us? What is it that we should put our hope in? That's the question. He answers those questions in Hebrews 11, 9 through 16. And he starts by talking about what did Abraham set his hope in? What was he hoping in? 
And he answers that in verses 9 and 10. Let's read verse 9. Start there. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Now, we saw last week the background to this story. Okay, we got the map up there. Okay, last week we saw, here's my little pointer, that Abraham was in Ur the Chaldees right here. Okay, he had a home, he had relationships, he had security. I mean, this was like his comfort zone right there in Ur the Chaldeans. And God called him, go to a place I'm going to show you. And so Abraham ended up, he trusted God, he went to travel up over the Fertile Crescent through Haran and then down here into the Promised Land. So it was a five or six hundred mile journey that Abraham embarked on. So in verse 9, he's there. He's in the land of, of promise. But the way that Abraham lives in the land of promise is puzzling. The way he lives for the rest of his life in the promised land is puzzling. And the author shows us how he lived with two phrases. First, he says, Abraham lived there as in a foreign land. Now, the word that's used there with the word live, New American Standard says he lived there as an alien, as an exile. And that's exactly what that word means. He lived there as in a foreign land, as an exile, somebody, that means he, he did not, he never treated it as his home. He never, even though he was in the land of promise, he never lived there as if it was his home. He never settled down. That's that phrase, as in a foreign land. And then the second phrase is that Abraham, along with Isaac and Jacob, were living in tents. You might think, well, everybody lived in tents back then. Not the case. There were cities. There were houses that were built. Abraham never built a house. He lived his entire life as a nomad in tents. Very strange. For the rest of his life, for decades, this is how Abraham lived. And so the question is, why? Why did Abraham live that way? Is in a foreign land, didn't see it as his home, lived as a nomad in tents. Why? Verse 10 explains. Notice the verse 10 begins with the word for, which shows the reason why. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations. He was looking to a, a different city, another city, a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. You now, what's the city that he's talking about? It's, the, it's, it's heaven, okay? And often in the book of Hebrews, heaven is described as a city, a city which God has designed, a city which God has built. And the most stunning truth about this city is not that there are streets of gold there or that there's pearly gates there or that there's big mansions there. The most stunning thing about this city is that God is there. God's there. And in fact, in chapter 12, the author of Hebrews says that heaven is the city of the living God, where God dwells. And so because you are trusting Jesus, and because he paid for all of your sins on the cross, you will be there. You will be there because of what Jesus Christ has done, and because you're trusting him. You will be there, which means, I mean, just... Try to wrap your heart around this a little bit more. You will be with God. You're going to be in the city of the living God. You'll be with God, who is the infinitely most important reality 
in existence, in the universe. It's God. And you're going to be with him. This being of passionate joy in the fellowship of the Trinity, who has universe-creating power. You're going to be with him. Universe-creating power and perfect justice and flawless goodness and cross-enduring mercy. You're going to be with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in the city of the living God. You're going to be with God, worshiping God, loving God, knowing God, beholding God, delighting in God, fellowshipping with God. That's what Abraham knew was coming. That's heaven. That's the city Abraham was looking forward to. There's the city I'm going to. There's home. That's what's in my future. And see, Abraham knew that that city has foundations. That city lasts. He knew that nothing else on this earth lasts. Nothing else on the earth has foundations. That city's got foundations. Nothing here is going to last. And so Abraham did not set his hope on anything here in this world. Abraham set his hope on the city which has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He set his hope on what he knew would last, on what he knew would always be there, on what he knew would always be satisfying him, knowing God through Jesus Christ in the city of God forever. Okay, so all of his hope was there. Verse 9 and 10. Now you could, you could think, okay, well now, if Abraham had all of his hope set in heaven, in the, in the life to come, does that mean God doesn't do anything for us here? We just look ahead and kind of gut it out, and there it is, and he doesn't really do anything for us here. It's not the case. Look at verse 11. This is why I think the author goes to the story of Sarah and Abraham, verses 11 and 12. He says, verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. This is in this life, these are things are happening. Even when she was past the age of childbearing, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Okay, so here's the story. Many of you know it. Sarah had never had a baby. And now she was well past childbearing years. Okay, well, well past. And so it looked like she would never get pregnant. But God had promised her, you're going to get pregnant. You and Abraham are going to get pregnant. You're going to have a baby. It looked impossible. Okay, I mean, there's, there's no physical way this was going to happen. This was going to mean a miracle taking place. It looked impossible, but she knew God had promised, Sarah, you're going to have a baby. So even though it looked impossible, she knew God had promised, and she had faith, which at the end of verse 11 means she considered him faithful who had promised. Sarah's a beautiful picture of having faith in God's promise here in this life, promises he's made to us here. And so she, now this promise wasn't, isn't made to every woman. This promise isn't made to every mother. This was made to Sarah, okay? And she trusted it. So I I can imagine Sarah praying and saying, Father, how am I going to have a baby? There's just, there's no way this is going to happen. I've never had a child and I'm past that age now. How's this going to take place? But father, you've promised, you promised that we would have a baby. And so I'm considering you faithful. You are faithful. You've promised you're faithful. It will happen. She, she considered him faithful who had promised. 
And what happened? By faith, Sarah received power to conceive. God brought his power upon her, changed her body through Abraham, Sarah. She got pregnant and she gave birth to Isaac. So what happens in this life, God worked in a miraculous, powerful way. Look at the result, verse 12. Therefore, from one man, so, so the author is bringing Abraham into the picture here, which is important. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, okay, Abraham was well past child fathering years, from one man, him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. From one man, Abraham, by God's miraculous power, through Abraham, Sarah, there were born millions and millions and millions of the people of the nation of Israel, fulfilling God's promise. Okay, this is through Isaac and Jacob and, and the whole story. So does God do anything for us in this life? Yes, absolutely. He works in powerful ways in this life. The story of Sarah becoming miraculously pregnant shows that's why I think the author puts it right here is to help us okay God does do works here and we see them throughout the Bible I mean throughout the Bible we see stories of God doing amazing miraculous things for us here in this life I just read this morning in Luke chapter 5 a man full of leprosy Jesus touched him and he was healed leprosy left him healing God brings healing in this life Read about uh, blind Bartimaeus, totally blind, was able to see. Read about people being freed from demonic powers. Read about Jesus multiplying five loaves and two fish into enough food to feed thousands. Read about Peter in prison. Chains fall off. The door opens. He walks out. Okay, we read about the nation of Israel having the Red Sea parting and going across and escaping from Egypt. So story after story after story after story of amazing ways that God works in our lives here and now. Okay, so the answer is yes. Okay, we all got that one? Yes, God does work in our lives here and now. But now, here's the question. If God did, does things for us here in this life, shouldn't we put our hope in those things. Shouldn't we put our hope in those things? Shouldn't we put our hope in God healing us? Shouldn't we put our hope in God providing us with financial prosperity? Shouldn't we put our, our hope in like escaping from prison whenever we're in prison like Peter did? And some people say we should. Um... I don't think that's right. That kind of a view is sometimes called prosperity theology, where we should we should expect healing. We should expect and hope in and put our, our trust in the miracle happening. So I'm going to walk a fine line here and see if I, if I can help some of you with sorting this out. Some people think we should expect God to, to heal us whenever we're sick. We should expect God only to bring us good things. I think that would be a mistake because of what the author says here at the beginning of verse 13. Remember, chapter 11, Hebrews 11, is showing us how God dealt with these people because that's also how God deals with us. Look at verse 13. He says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Okay, let's unpack that. Very important 
statements. These all. Who is he talking about? Who are, who are the these all? Well, it's the immediate previous context. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob, at least. Okay? Old Testament believers. And so Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob all died in faith, trusting God. Abraham was trusting God, died. Sarah was trusting God, died. Isaac, Jacob, trusting God, and died. And yet even though they trusted God, they did not receive the things promised. Why not? Sarah had gotten pregnant, hadn't she? Noah had been saved from the flood, hadn't he? Why hadn't they received the things promised? What's he talking about here? The reason he says that is because while God does things for us in this life, and God did things for them in this life, these aren't the main thing God promises. These aren't the biggest promise that God has for us. There is one main promise Old Testament, New Testament, Genesis to Revelation. There's one main promise that all the other promises are pointing towards. And that promise is what Abraham had been hoping in. The city which has foundations. The city of the living God. Where there will be no more death. No more pain. No more mourning, sadness, grief. No more. No more. No more temptations. No more sinning. No more problems. No more difficulties. That's what's coming. Okay? And not only the absence of those things, but best of all, it's going to be being with God face to face. Knowing the Father through Jesus by the Holy Spirit. That's the main promise. That is the promise that God's promised to us. And it's not something we receive here because it's, it's heaven. Okay? It's the city of the living God. But that does not mean that God doesn't do things here and now. We see it in Sarah's story right there. And yet we don't put our hope in those things. Now see if this helps you. Why don't we put our hope in those things? It's because... Even though God can supernaturally heal, okay, we pray for healing here. We believe in supernatural healing. We believe God can heal. We believe there's many times when God will heal. Even though God can heal, he doesn't always heal. Sometimes he chooses to heal. Beautiful, miraculous healing for the glory of God. You're good. His glory is awesome. But sometimes in great love for you, in great wisdom, he chooses to not heal your sickness. Oh, we've got to understand this. This is so important. Just as kind of God, just as loving of God, there are times where he chooses not to heal. There are times where he chooses not to give pregnancy. There are times where he chooses the sickness to remain. There's times where he chooses to allow that sickness to bring death. Out of great love, just as much love because he's going to bring you so much of himself through that trial and into glory that you will, when you enter the city of the living God, you will say, thank you for the trial. 
It's just the reality. So that's why we don't put our hope in healing, because while he can heal and he does heal, he doesn't always heal. And so if your hope is in the healing, you're going to be devastated if it doesn't happen. See, God has told us in the word that this side of heaven, well, John 16, 33, Jesus says, in the world, you will have what? Tribulations. That's a promise. You will have tribulations. Psalm 34, 19, David says, many, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Uh, Paul in Acts 14, 21, as he's preaching to a new church he's just planted, he says, to enter the kingdom of God, we must go through many difficulties. Okay, so see, see too many believers, because we, we hear other teachings swirling around. You can think if you're in the midst of difficulties, you think, what's the problem? But Paul would say, you're on the road to heaven. To enter the kingdom of God, we must go through many difficulties. Now, God can deliver from trials. God, Peter was in jail, and God sent an angel, and Peter miraculously was freed from jail in the book of Acts. But remember, in that exact same book of Acts, what happened to James? He was in prison, and he had his head cut off. Same book. Oh, church, we, we, we got to wrap our minds around this. Same book. Thank you, Lord, for delivering Peter. And then with weeping and lamenting, we trust you for losing James, the apostle. We trust you for that. Same God, same love, same faithfulness, same care for us, working in very, very different ways. Now, we pray for miracles. We pray Free Peter from prison. We pray, heal. We pray, bring the jobs. We pray, restore families. We pray, save lost. We, we pray, we fast, we plead, and God works many, many, many times in very, very powerful ways. But we don't put our hope in those kinds of things taking place because he may choose to do something different. Remember, uh, when the disciples came back from their missionary journey and they'd had an amazing time. They'd been casting demons out of people and they just like, Jesus, it was happening. Your power, you gave us power and we were casting out demons. This is amazing. And do you remember what Jesus said to them? First he said, yes, uh, I saw Satan was falling like lightning from heaven. Brothers, this was awesome. And remember the next thing he says? says, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice in what? That your names are written in heaven. Brothers, it was awesome. Don't put your hope in that. There may be ministry situations you're in where that's not what I'm doing. And even if that is what I'm doing, that's not what's going to satisfy you. Put your hope in what's going to satisfy you and what I'm always promising I will do for you, your name's being written in heaven. So don't put your hope in a problem-free life. Church, please do not do that. It will destroy your faith if you do. God never promised that. Oh, we've got to get this. We've got to understand this. Don't put your hope in a problem-free life. Put your hope in the problem 
solving God, the problem sustaining God. But don't put your hope in a problem-free life. Don't put your hope in anything in this world. Don't put your hope in money. Don't put your hope in health. Don't put your hope in prosperity. Don't put your hope in business success. God can do any of those. But don't put your hope in them because the same God with the same love can bring you an entirely different package. And if your hope is in healing or prosperity, health or wealth, then when the trials come, you can... I've seen people turn their backs on God. I thought there was a God. Where is God? I thought God was loving. Do you understand that when God brings you the trials... He does so with tears in his eyes because he knows this is going to be hard and he will sorrow with you in the hardness. And he's also got strength and resolve in his heart because this is going to be such a gift to you. Such a gift of nearness with him. Such a gift of more of him. Such a gift of increased heart filling with the presence of God now and forever. This is such a gift He sorrows in the pain and he knows this is a precious gift and that's God's heart towards you and we need to learn to receive these as gifts. And we can pray that God takes them away, right? Right? Like Paul did with his thorn in the flesh, 2 Corinthians 12, three times, earnestly praying, Father, please take this away from me. Right? Paul, an apostle. And God's answer is, uh, Paul, this time, It's my grace that's going to be sufficient for you. My power is going to be magnified in your life through this staying, Paul. So Paul's answer was, therefore I boast in weaknesses. I boast in difficulties. I boast in trials. I boast in sickness. I boast in problems. I boast in setbacks. Because when I'm weak, he is strong. When I'm weakest, I experience his strength the most powerfully. Now, some of you really need to hear this this morning. Maybe you're not in a trial right now, but but when the trials come, oh, church, we've got to be a church which has, like, backbone of understanding the doctrines of the scriptures when it comes to trials. God blesses his choice people with some painful trials. Job is a perfect example, right? The most righteous man in the world was Job. And he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So don't put your hope in things of this world. Don't put your hope in having perfect children. Don't put your hope in anything in this world. So where should we put our hope? It's where Abraham puts it back in chapter 9, or verses 9 and 10, in the city of the living God. Now, how do we do that? How do we put our hope in in the city of the living God, in, in, in our heavenly city? I saw three really helpful, we'll call them steps, in verses 13 through 16. Really helpful. First step, by faith, see the things promised and greet them from afar. That's verse 13. It's in verse 13. Read it again. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, 
but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Okay, the promise of heaven is still future for them and for us. So it's unseen. So how do we see the things promised from afar? How how do we see that? Remember verse 1? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, and it's the evidence of things not seen. And so here's what God can do. As, As you have faith in what God has said about the city of the living God. As you open up passages that describe heaven, like Revelation 5, Revelation 7, Revelation 21, Hebrews chapter 12 has a powerful passage. As you set your heart upon what God promises about heaven, and as you look at those passages and ponder those passages and then trust what God says in those passages, you will have times where the Holy Spirit enables you to see heaven. You will see it. Not, not with your physical eyes, not like, there it is, but with the eyes of your heart. You will see it with the eyes of your heart. You will taste it. You will feel it. And it will be so satisfying to you. That little taste of the joys of what heaven will be will be so satisfying that you will, you will see it and welcome it from afar. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. That's what I'm for. And that's what God can do for you. When was the last time God gave you a, a taste of, of heaven so that you could see it, feel it, just a little, a little taste? It's like, oh, it's real. It's satisfying because it's you, God. I'm, I'm, I'm sensing you. I'm, I'm tasting you, the down payment of the inheritance. It's a crucial step. By faith, see the things promised and greet them from afar. That's what they did. These all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. So do that. I would encourage you to make part of your devotional life praying over scriptures about heaven. Simple as that. Some of you may just don't have the the slightest desire for heaven. Uh, I've got good news for you. God wants to and will change that. Uh, the first step might be to, to be saved. You might not have been born again yet. Okay? And so what you need to do is turn from whatever you've been putting your hope in. Because that, see, that will ultimately fail you, right? Can we all be clear on that? Death will make all those things ultimately fail. They may fail you in this life. They may not fail you in this life. But death, they will fail you. Can we all, is that, can we see that clearly? Death takes everything from this world away. Except, except two things, the faith you've nurtured in Christ and the people you've brought to faith and you're taken with you. But everything else is gone with death. And so you may need to be born again. So you turn away from those other things you were trusting and you, and you look to Jesus Christ and you say, help me, strengthen my faith, forgive me for my sin through your death on the cross. I give my life to you. I want you as my Lord. I want you as my Savior. I want you as my treasure. And when that happens, God has has given you a new birth. You've been born again. You have a brand new heart, a brand new nature, and you see God, feel God, taste God. It's not constant. There's ups and downs, but you will have times in when you see this. So maybe if you haven't been born again is what you need to, to do to, to be able to see and taste what heaven really is. And then you'll put your hope in it, and it'll be your rock through the worst trials. It'll be your strength through the worst trials. Now, those of you maybe are born again, but it's been a long time since you've really asked the Lord, 
I want to see the city of the living God and greet it from afar. So take time to pray. Take time to take your hope out of the other things that you've been drifting towards trusting and put your hope all the more in Christ. And he will give you times where you see with the eyes of your heart and feel and taste heaven. So do that. See the things promised and greet them from afar. That's the first step. The second step is to understand this is so radical, but it's just, it's so true. We are strangers and exiles on the earth. We are strangers and exiles here. End of verse 13. I'll read the whole verse. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. This world is not our home. You need a home. God made you to to have a home. This is not your home. This is good news for some of you. This is not your home. If you're full of, life is full of trials here, it's not like I've got a home and it's like really a mess. No, this is not your home. Home is coming. Here you are a stranger and an exile. That's the language that the patriarchs used as they described their their life in the promised land. So this world is not your home. Nothing here is going to satisfy your heart. Nothing here will last past death. So don't put your hope in anything here. Don't build your foundations here. Travel light through this world and bring as many people with you as you can. You're a stranger here. You're an alien and an exile here. Focus on what lasts. Like I said, the only things that last from this world, just get this in your mind, is the faith in Jesus Christ you've nurtured and the people you've brought to faith in Jesus Christ. That's all that's going to last from this world. So don't don't pour your life into things that aren't going to last. Third, seek and desire your homeland. That's the point of verses 14 through 16. For people who speak thus, he's talking about how at the end of verse 13, the patriarchs describe themselves as being strangers and exiles on the earth. Abraham said this to people. He said, I'm a stranger and I'm an exile here. So people who speak that way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They're not in their homeland. They're seeking their homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, Ur of the Chaldeans, they would have had an opportunity to return there. That's not, that's not why they're saying that they are strangers and exiles. It's not, well, I, my home is Ur of the Chaldeans. That's not what he's saying. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You've got the perfect home. God has designed it and built it. The focus of the home, the heavenly city, is that it's with God. You'll be with him. He is your home. God is your home. Don't look for your home in anything else. Don't look for your home anywhere else. And so what this means is that trials here should not discourage you. Please think this through so that when trials come, you don't think something terrible is wrong. Pray for deliverance. Pray that God will take it away. But the fact that a trial there does not mean something terribly is wrong. This was promised to us. 
if the fact that if God chooses to have it stay and not take it away, it doesn't mean something's wrong. God has promised that many trials will stay. Again, why? Because God's going to use those trials to bring us even more of himself. It's a precious, precious gift. So the fact that you have trials, understand you've got a home. When you are seeing the difficulties you're facing, you've got a home. The problems that you're having here, you've got a home. Put your hope in your home. And through Jesus Christ, being with God forever. That's what Abraham did. He set his heart. He looked forward to the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So how are you doing with this? Some of you right now, I, I, I would guess in a group this size, you are bitter, um, angry, against God for some trial he's allowed to come into your life. And I just want to appeal to you, God never promised he wouldn't do those sorts of things. He never said he wouldn't do those sorts of things. You have no reason to think that God has failed you. He's not failed you. And that might sound hard, but it's so important to understand the truth about these things. Because when you turn your heart to God and say, okay, Help me with this. I don't get it. I don't understand it. You've brought this trial, and yet it's not that you failed me. How can that be? Bring that to him. Talk to him about that. Look at what he has promised. Momentary, light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 momentary light afflictions. Paul says in verse 16, therefore we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. Why? Because momentary light afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory. God brings momentary light afflictions. That doesn't mean, okay, God's people just have really easy ones. What that means is that the the devastating trials God's people can face here is like momentary in light compared to the weight of glory that's going to be ours. While we look not at the things which are seen, but we look to the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. What's Paul telling us to put our focus on in that verse? The city of the living God. So please, church, nurture hope in heaven. Nurture love for being with God in his city forever. Long for that, desire that, prayer of the scriptures until he helps you to see it, and you'll be able to weather the storms. You'll be able to keep going through the trials, because this is not it. Heaven's coming, this world is not my home, I'm going to be going home where there is no more trials, no more tears, no more mourning, no more death, the presence of God forever. Nurture that, fight for that. Help each other nurture that. Help each other fight for that. That's what the author is calling us to do here. Let's stand together. I want to pray this over us. And I want to start by praying for some of you where, oh, you've, you've, you have felt like God has failed you. And so, Father, I pray for those right now who have felt that, maybe are feeling that right now. They feel like you've, you've failed them because there's some big, painful trials in their lives. Father, please, I pray, help them now. Meet them now. Comfort them now, I pray. Help them rethink 
what you have promised and what you have not promised. And I pray, Lord, that as they're going through these weighty, painful trials, I pray that you would do what you've promised, that as they seek you, you would pour your love into their hearts. You would give them even more nearness with you, even more joy in you, and that you would so satisfy them that the joy of knowing you would so outweigh the trial that they would say, I trust you and I'm even going to thank you. Please, Lord, those in our midst right now who have felt like you have failed them, please help them, strengthen them, comfort them, and meet them. I pray for those of us, Lord, where things are going pretty well, but I pray that we would not put our hope in things going pretty well here. Help us to put our hope in what you have promised, what is certain, what is lasting, and what is satisfying. And that is you, the city of the living God, being there forever. Lord, strengthen us in that. I pray that this week, each of us would have time where as we pray over your word, you would enable us to see the things promised and welcome them from afar. I pray that you would do that, Lord. You'd fill us, you'd strengthen us, you'd satisfy us with a vision, tastes of heaven. Your presence, I pray that you would do that, Lord. And then, God, I pray that you'd give us great wisdom as we have people at work or in our neighborhoods who are going through serious trials, that we can speak to them with comfort and compassion and help them, Lord, I pray. And, and bring them the, the true news, the good news of what you promised to be to them in Christ. Oh, Lord, transform our lives with this example from Hebrews 11, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.